Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 11, The Great Fair of Nizhny Novgorod, The Tale of Avgustin Betancourt. The grey skies of 1817's autumn found their reflection in the grey, slow waters of the Volga. High on a hill above the river stared down Augustin Betancourt, or to give him his full name, Augustin José Pedro de Carmen Domingo del Calandria de Betancourt y Molina. A Spanish nobleman, he had been born on the sun-bathed island of Tenerife, so very far away from the depths of the Russian provinces where he now stood. Behind him was the lofty city of Nizhny Novgorod, once the easternmost limit of Russia's medieval expansion, but in 1817, a rather dull little town of about 15,000 people. The city's most spectacular features were, and remain, its centuries-old fortress, a typically Russian ensemble of square red-brick towers, onion-domed churches and low government buildings, and its spectacular topography. The old part of Nizhny sits on craggy bluffs overlooking both the Volga and its tributary Dioka, with the fortress and its walls at the highest point. The newer areas lie on the opposite bank of the Oka, far lower, flatter and closer to the water. Today some nine bridges unite the two sides, but in 1817 all that was still in the future. Right now Beckentur is looking down precisely at a spot on the opposite side of the Oka, his mind cranking out calculations, plans, blueprints, alongside a coterie of fellow engineers and architects are doing much the same. We might imagine Beckenter turning to his compatriots and uttering some phrase like, this is where we shall build our fair. This location would one day soon become the fair of Nizhny Novgorod, the greatest emporium of the Russian Empire, attracting hundreds of thousands of visitors a day and trading goods worth millions of rubles, not just from Russia's far-flung dominions, but even from distant China and Persia. Beckenter was the right man for the job. Receiving an excellent engineering education in Paris, he had spent much of his youth studying the canal systems of Europe for the benefit of the Spanish monarchs, just as hungry as the Russian Tsars to open up their kingdom to the benefits of flourishing modern trade. While working in Spain itself, Beckenter also managed the postal service and the road system. One of his innovations in 1798 was the development of an optical telegraph system, using semaphore stations to quickly pass messages from one distant part of the realm to its beating heart in Madrid. His talents came in most handy though, when the armies of Napoleon, a quarter of a million strong, stormed through the Pyrenees and overthrew the Spanish Bourbon monarchy, replacing King Ferdinand with Joseph Bonaparte in 1808. The exceptional engineer decided to flee, and no place was more welcoming to emigre European talent than the early 19th century Russian Empire. He was quickly put to work on an enormous number of projects, 
rebuilding the old cannon factories of Tula, constructing a new bridge across the river Nieva in St. Petersburg, and establishing an institute to train communication engineers were just a few of the major projects he completed. But it is his work on the market fair of Nizhny Novgorod that most concerns us today. As in other European states before the railway, the canal and the telegraph, market fairs, both big and small, were a vital component of the Russian economy. Gathering a large amount of goods and traders together in one place for a month or two allowed for the widest possible distribution of products over a country as yet untouched by modern technologies of transport and communication. The River Volga was an ideal site. Originating at a source near the central Russian city of Tver, it flowed down through some 42 provinces of the Russian Empire before reaching the port city of Astrakhan, a vital entrepot situated on the Caspian Sea. One of its tributaries connected to the River Kama, which stretched into the Ural Mountains, while canal systems linked the Volga to the Moskva and Nieva rivers, thus providing access to the two capitals of Moscow and St. Petersburg, and from the latter, the Baltic. Waterborne transport was generally quicker and smoother than going over land, and the expansion of state power down the river had mostly eradicated the Volga pirates who had plagued traders and merchants throughout the 18th century. This is not to say that Volga transportation was perfect. Shifting water levels and dangerous sandbanks made navigation tricky even for experienced barge pilots and necessitated large teams of barge pullers to be on call. Strays, derelicts, fugitives and desperados, the barge pullers received a pittance to be strapped into great harnesses of leather and rope and pull boats off dunes and down dangerous stretches in the baking sun of navigation season, a scene poignantly captured in the artist Ilya Lepin's 1873 masterpiece. But for all these problems, the Volga was still by far the biggest and best Russian river for commerce. This had been recognised for many centuries, with the Volga attracting traders from east, north, south and west, even before anything like the Russian state had come into existence. In 1624, a one-day trade fair had begun at the monastery town of Makariv, not too far from Nizhny Novgorod. Organised and set up by the monks, it mostly dealt in trinkets spun, woven and carved by local peasants. Spoons, hats, gloves, crosses and earrings were typical of the goods being hawked. However, the perfect river placement of the fair soon increased both the number and type of goods on offer, leading the monastery's profits from renting booths to soar. Bulky goods like glass, leather and iron arrived by barge and were deposited on the town's wharf. A witness from 1801 describes the scene. The din of arriving wagons and carriages, the voices of the oarsmen unloading the goods, the cries issuing from the public houses and taverns, produce such a noise that it makes one's head spin. However, as time passed, Makariv seemed less and less fit for purpose, especially to the government, which took over the running of the fair 
from the monastery in 1751. Located on the flat low bank of the Volga, it was subject to repeated flooding, the waters tearing away temporary wooden booths and corroding the stone ones. Disputes between the monks and villagers on the opposite bank over who precisely had the right to convey people and goods across the river, an enormously lucrative business, led to repeated raids by the villagers, who stormed the fair with an assortment of weapons. Hence it was decided in the early 19th century that a move was in order. Becanteur was put in charge of choosing the new location and constructing a series of appropriately luxurious buildings to house this most profitable establishment. As we know, he chose the lower half of Nizhny Novgorod. The choice was not necessarily a good one. The banks of the Oka were almost as prone to flooding as Makariv, with the waters reaching a depth of 14 feet during the spring. But Becantur was not going to let a little thing like nature stand in the way. Adding a further 2.4 million rubles to his already enormous expenditure, he artificially lifted the river bank and created a sophisticated draining system. By 1822, the main complex of the trade fair was complete, the Gastini de Vaux, or Merchant's Court. It was an architectural marvel, with 48 two-storey buildings divided by three tree-lined streets. It contained over 2,500 shops. Covered galleries offered shoppers protection from summer storms. At the northwestern end of the complex were the Chinese rows, built to resemble pagodas. Here goods from the Far East would be sold, especially and most importantly tea. To the west of the ensemble, one could find a Russian Orthodox cathedral. And at its southeastern point was the main hall, a three-story arcade with a residence for Nizhny Novgorod's governor, a post office for police station, a doctor's surgery and an exchange hall for merchants to meet and barter in. As impressive an achievement as this was, Becantur was not to see the full expanse of his vision realised. He passed away in 1824, but construction still had another three years to go. By this point, the Russian state had spent a decade and over 11 million rubles on the project, an astronomical sum. But by all accounts, it was worthwhile. Russian commerce on the Volga now had a truly palatial seat, as Count Hostov enthusiastically burbled. Really, the splendid four-cornered building, providing all the conveniences and meeting all the needs of the traders, enchants the onlooker with its symmetry and beauty. Honour and glory to Mr. Bacantur and his helpers. And since the government owned both all the buildings and all the land, it could expect to recoup no small part of its expenditure from rent. From 1827 to the opening days of the First World War, the market fair of Nizhny Novgorod was considered one of the marvels of Russia, a must-see spot not only for industrialists, merchants, traders, hawkers and peddlers, but for tourists and revelers from the empire, Europe and even beyond. What was it like then? 
to wander down the trading rows of the great fair. The fair was not permanently open. Instead, it traded mostly from the middle of July to the early weeks of September, with the opening of August being the most important period for the bigger sellers and buyers. Nor was it simply restricted to the stone buildings built by Becantour. Around the outskirts of this complex spread out a huge temporary shantytown of wooden buildings and mud paths. Some of these shacks were more or less permanent, so long as the floodwaters did not take them, fires consume them, or old age derelict them. Others were far less steadfast, shambolic huts rapidly assembled and deconstructed at the beginning and end of a trading season. Others still were less than even this, wagons open to reveal their bounty, or small stands for shouting from, often formed the sides of these hastily assembled streets. A person's experience at the fair would be very different depending on where you walked, amidst the stone or amidst the wood, across pavement or atop of mud. In Becantour's magisterial complex, the pace of life was generally sedate. The rents on the shops here were high, allowing only the richest merchants and aristocratic industrialists to afford them. Consequently, these were the hunting grounds of the wealthiest, most elite shoppers. A day here would see noble families parading on the free boulevards, gazing into boutiques, offering high fashion, brilliant jewellery and fabulous delicacies. If husbands wearied of their wives' endless browsing, a gentleman's club gave them respite, at a hand or two of cards. Marching bands provided musical accompaniments in the day, while the evening saw orchestras, letting the rich young things waltz the night away. Cafes quenched first, and for hunger there was the restaurant Yegorov's, a luxuriously upholstered eatery with only the finest cuisine on sale. Of course, the gentility of these establishments was not necessarily a constant. On one occasion, an absolute scandal erupted when a champagne-fueled debauch in an elite ballroom led the inebriated parties to can-can their way right into ongoing business negotiations between some of the fair's greatest magnates. Visiting in the 1870s, the British Member of Parliament Henry Monroe Butler Johnston saw such a party among some wealthy traders. The conduct of these middle-aged devotees of commerce and frolic resembled nothing so much as a pack of emancipated schoolboys or rollicking undergraduates. They would assemble in a room at one of the restaurants and, putting the door ajar, swear by all the saints in the Orthodox calendar, a potentially accumulative oath, that they would not leave the room until they had battered the door by a bombardment of champagne corks sufficiently open to allow them to pass. The batteries would be open, the champagne all the while flying down the throats of these braves until they were too drunk to distinguish between open and closed doors, or to get through any doors. In the stone trading rows, one also got to experience the multinational, 
multi-ethnic diversity for which the fair was famed, drawing its participants as it did from the tens of peoples living in the Russian Empire, as well as visitors from Europe, Persia and the Emirates of Central Asia. Strolling around this part of the fair in 1843, the German Dr. Kosegarten observed that The merchants in their various national costumes often sit quietly in front of their shops. Besides the national Russian and modern European dress, one sees in particular Tatar and Armenian, some Persian, and less frequently Turkish costumes. But even for these elite guests and merchants, not everything was comfort. The sheer mass of people descending on Nizhinovgorod meant that hotels rapidly filled all their rooms. Here were flock close to a million people of all nations, climates and from various parts of the world. There is not one least bit tolerable lodging. Everywhere filth and exorbitant prices, griped the newspaper Ruski Vesnik in 1860. Some of these traders had to live in the second floors of their shops. Not an enviable experience, according to the merchant Pavel Shukin. Living in the fair premises was not always pleasant. In the strong heat, as a result of the low rooms, it was sometimes so stuffy at night we had to sleep naked, and in the cold we froze because there was no stove and it was drafty everywhere and in order to warm ourselves a bit, we burned alcohol. However, these slight hardships paled in comparison to what one would find in the rough and ready lands of the wooden encampment. Swamps of mud, horse manure and waste assailed the intrepid visitor from the world of the stone arcades, along with the smells of unwashed people, weary horses and every conceivable form of libation and food, cooked or cold, fresh or rotten. Potatoes, bread, sausage, sweet apple, dried apricot, sliced pear, vodka, wine and beer, either being brewed or regurgitated, and the ever-present pies, flogged by vendors desperately trying to outshout the jostling crowd. Hot, sweet, flaky pies, with beef, with sausage, with eggs, with Kiev jam, French, Italian, English pies, baked marvellously, it melts in your mouth, it won't dirty your face, it cheers your stomach, was one such call recorded from the time. Here one would certainly not find the delights of Yegorlov's restaurant, but a whole host of other seedier pleasures. For the adamantly sober there were the tea rooms, for the incurably tipsy there were the endless tractiers, Russian taverns where one could celebrate an astounding profit or drown the sorrows of a heavy loss with copious quantities of vodka. By far the least salubrious of these bars were Kuznetsov's and Zodkovich's nefarious for hosting every kind of petty criminal and bribing the police to look the other way. Indeed, Kuznetsov's was closed after a fire revealed the establishment was hiding a number of corpses from the prying eyes of the authorities.
The ladies who sang, danced and served in such dens would notoriously moonlight as prostitutes, adding to the already considerable number of people who dedicated themselves full-time to this particular trade at the fair. It was presumably for these women and their clients that an official syphilis clinic was established at the fair in 1844. So infamous was this form of prostitution that the local government ended up banning women from serving in the tracteers from 1897 to 1906. The dean of raucous laughter, bellowing drunks, clattering dances and shrill singing from these disreputable saloons was disguised by the cacophonous medley outside. Here one not only heard the shouts of peddlers and conversations from thousands of mouths in tens of languages, but the warbling of folk choirs, the applause of theatre audiences and the gasps of circus goers. Circuses made their way to the Nizhny Fair from Moscow and Europe, finding rapt audiences. Of particular popularity in the 1880s and 1890s was the Moscow Circus of Gino. Among the sights and sounds in his circus were a genuine Texas bull and a female rider who slowly stripped off her clothing as she sat atop a bucking stallion. In the theatres, all kinds of tastes were provided for, from the classics of European and Russian theatre to bawdy comedies and sickly sweet melodramas. One might get to see Shakespeare in English as well as Ostrovsky in Russian. Indeed, the former African-American slave Ira Aldrich performed Macbeth, Othello and King Lear in 1862 to thunderous acclaim. The two main theatres, the large and small theatres, stood across the street from one another. One journalist observed, The actors and actresses would perform one play at one theatre, and then, even in costume, run across the street to perform another play at the other theatre, then back again. And then there were the intermissions, during which they practised various gymnastic stunts. These were only the biggest, most organised acts and entertainments, amidst the food booths, bauble stands and clothing outlets, you could chance upon fortune tellers, dancing bears, folk magicians, snake oil merchants, gymnasts, dancers and singers. In the 1840s, visiting Tartars were amazed to hear an English lady singer called Bishop belting out her own renditions of their classic folk tunes. Jesters, dressed as roosters, bears and rabbits, rushed around and startled unsuspecting passers-by, while freak shows put on stage what they termed anatomical abnormalities. Giants, albinos and strange cloudy jars containing barely perceptible oddities. The authorities and culture classes were often horrified both by the alcoholic excess and the perceived lewdness of popular culture. But their measures against all this were normally either useless, painfully naive, or both. One governor of Nizhny Novgorod, Alexei Adinsov, desperately advised that In the entertainment establishments, and especially in those where there are dance evenings, street decorum must be observed. 
visitors, male and female, must conduct themselves modestly, not permitting themselves any kind of vulgar jokes and unseemly oaths, because in these places there might be, out of curiosity, foreign travellers, who as a result of some type of indecency or scandal draw unpleasant conclusions about the whole mass of people. This, of course, was very much tipping at windmills. More serious and far more terrifying were the orders of a later governor against drunkenness. If anyone was found to have passed out from drink, they were to be dragged to a special clinic and administered an injection of the neurotoxin strychnine, at the time regarded as a cure for alcohol. 1,474 such injections were given during the fair of 1888. Properly policing such a rambunctious event would be difficult even today. For the Russian state of the 19th century, it was nearly impossible. But the police they did employ, at the very least, provided yet another attraction. From the late 1830s, 300 Cossacks from Orlenburg were tasked with ensuring law and order. Their bright red blouses, curved sabres and long lances garnering attention from all comers. While the endless entertainments of the fair were the draw for much of the crowd that visited each year, for the really big spenders this was nothing but a distraction from business. In the restaurants, coffee houses, tea shops and taverns, in both the majestic central arcade and the slovenly wooden outskirts, one would see these merchants haggling and negotiating deals, some of which were probably worth more than the collective fortunes of the thousands of people around them. Before the 1860s, the most important product was tea. Picked in the heartlands of China, these unassuming leaves first had to travel thousands of miles to the frontier with Russia, where Siberian wholesalers were permitted two trading towns. These wholesalers, a tiny group of 200 or so families, wielded an absolute monopoly on this trade, making a tidy, although not massive, profit. They then had to cart their loads across the endless forest wastes of Siberia, a trip somewhat easier in the winter when the snows allowed for sleds. Arriving in the Urals, the precious cargo was placed on barges and taken down the river Kama to the Volga and thence Nizhny Novgorod. The entire process took months. Once in Nizhny, the chests of tea, some 60,000 of them by the 1860s, were deposited on the Siberian wharf, a special jetty constructed to store the bulkier goods arriving by river. Here, products would sit unprotected from the elements, a ruinous occurrence for more delicate items like the cottons brought from Persia via Astrakhan. After selling their tea in bulk to Moscow wholesalers, the Siberians would then use their profits to buy textiles, which they could trade to their Chinese counterparts once they made the long, long return trip. Other big industrial products available included iron from the Ural factory plants, produced by fabulously wealthy land-owning aristocratic families like the Demidovs and Stroganovs, and cotton textiles from Moscow and its environs 
Indeed, when tea became more cheaply available from the 1860s via Britain and Russia's ports, the textile trade came to dominate the large-scale commerce at the trade fair. But the huge sales and purchases were only partially the point of the fair. Just as important for Russia's massive, poor and undeveloped domestic market of peasants were the much smaller transactions made by itinerant tradesmen. These individuals spent all their lives on the road, passing through towns, villages and hamlets in small wagons or carts that held within the precious prizes bought at the Nizhny Novgorod trade fair. Clothing, jewellery, tools, leather goods, religious paraphernalia and other knickknacks were sold out to eager peasant crowds. The arrival of such a hawker in a village was always a significant event in the drudgery of rural life. Then the peddler would move on with his coin, ready in the summer to return to Nizhny Novgorod to start the process all over again. In this way, goods made across the Russian Empire gradually began to percolate into the depths of the countryside. By the beginning of the 20th century, the crowds at the Great Trade Fair were beginning to thin out, while the value of the transactions there also entered into decline. This gradual diminishment owed much to Russia's rapidly developing network of railways, telegraph stations and steamboats. Initially, in the 1860s and the 1870s, the fair had done well out of the train, since it made Moscow, the hub of Russia's textile industry, more accessible. But as the rail relentlessly spread further east and south, wholesalers and retailers no longer needed the fair to pick up goods. Now they could order goods directly from the factories and have them transported to their warehouses, from whence they could be more easily distributed to thousands of smaller shops and sellers across the country. Equally, the length of a trip to Nizhny Novgorod had once made a long-term stay at the fair a necessity. Even from Moscow, relatively close, it could take three or four days to reach Nizhny by land. But with the advent of steam power, businessmen and traders could arrive at the fair in less than a day from the old capital, and so many no longer felt the need to stay for long. Consequently, the need for restaurants, pubs and the buzzing, thriving host of diversions also began to evaporate. Once an event of international significance, the Nizhny Novgorod Fair slowly turned into a matter of import only for the province in which it sat. It managed to briefly survive both the First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution, meeting for the last time in 1929, now more of an exhibition space than a site of wheeling and dealing. With the rejection of even this vestige of capitalism, Stalin dealt the death blow to this unique site of Russian trading culture. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time. Mm-hmm.